Welcome to Backlogs, an arts management podcast series where we delve into the histories and evolving practice of arts management in Singapore. The world of arts management is a vast and wide-ranging one, and this podcast series is a humble attempt at beginning to map this world and chart its growth. This pilot series focuses on the management of the theatre and literary art worlds, a process that brings text to the stage or page. It also focuses on the time period of the 1980s to 1995, an exciting time for the local arts ecosystem, because of the crucial work of the arts managers in the increasing professionalisation of the arts and cultural industries. Head to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G for more information and resources. The 1980s was in many ways a very pivotal time for the growth of the arts. This was a time where there was more support for the arts from public and private entities, enabling arts companies and arts events to reach out to a wider and more diverse audience. The infrastructure of the arts was developing with the release of Singapore's first official and publicly available cultural policy in 1989, which would result in a push towards, number one, professionalisation of the arts manager as a proper full-time profession, as well as, number two, the establishment of a variety of monetary and resource support schemes for the arts, and finally, the formation of the National Arts Council, or NAC, in 1991. Now, particularly exciting part of this vibrant time was the Singapore Arts Festival, which had started in 1975. But only in the 1980s did it reach greater audiences because of increased state and private support. One spirited arts manager was integral to the growth of the arts festival as well as the setting up of the NAC. And we have the fortune of speaking with him today, Mr. Arun Mahilnan. Welcome to Backlogs, Arun. Thank you very much for having me on this show. We're very delighted to have you in. I'm just going to give a little bit more context before I ask you some questions and just find out a little bit more about how you began and suddenly your illustrious career as well. Arun was a member of the Festival Steering Committee from 1980 to 1990. And at the time of the appointment, he was Public Affairs Advisor at Mobile Oil Singapore and is credited as being instrumental in Mobile's decision to sponsor the 1982 Singapore Arts Festival with $500,000. And that was certainly a really huge amount. He advocated for the need of a festival artistic director as well as a professionally organised secretariat, roles that call for the unique and multifaceted skills of an arts manager. This was then a pivotal move and also a landmark event in the professionalization of arts management in Singapore. Arun was also a key figure in the development of Singapore's cultural policy in the late 80s. Now, for the 1991 establishment of the National Arts Council, he chaired the subcommittee that drew up the blueprint for the NAC. The subcommittee was part of the Advisory Council on Arts and Culture. So Arun, we're very interested in how this love affair with arts began. If I can just ask you a little bit about your early days. I know you were born in India and you moved to Singapore at a young age for secondary school. Now, did you study the arts at all to become an arts manager? Uh, you use the phrase love affair. Like love, you don't have to study it to <laughs> fall in love. I, I never studied arts management in any formal way. Mm -hmm. What I know about arts management is by doing and learning. 
But I would say that my university education in Tamil literature has a lot to do with my fundamental philosophies on arts, culture, which I suppose in a way also led me to look at arts management in a certain way. That's true, yes. You had a tradition of involvement in the literary arts from a young age. And I think when we look at families that have that, I think a lot of the times the parents love arts and the children also follow up and continue in the arts as well. That's certainly the case in my family. My entire family had an active interest in the literary art, of course, Tamil literary art. My mother could not speak English, mm. but she, though she was not educated in the formal sense, she was uh, widely read. Uh, so was my father, my two brothers and sister. And your long and substantial involvement of the arts speaks to not just the love that you talked about, but also in the policy of it. You're currently a special research advisor at the Institute of Policy Studies as well. What kind of a landscape was there to go towards supporting the arts when you began your work with the Arts Festival? Okay, if we start with the Arts Festival, my intense involvement began in 1979 when I joined uh, Mobile Oil Corporation. And I would say the prevalent sense of Singapore was a cultural desert. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we use that phrase in some of our promotional material when we put out advertisements for the Arts Festival, who says Singapore is a cultural desert? In fact, it is not, and here it is, in the oasis of arts. I would say both by design and by chance, mm -hmm. the arts in Singapore had not been developed anywhere to the extent, in my humble opinion, it could have been, mm -hmm. Partly because there was an obsessive concern about economic development. And there is a lot of justification for that obsession because, as you all know, 1965, we were cast out of Malaysia. And there was a literally, and I'm, this is not just a figurative thing about Singapore, whether it'll sink or swim. So the kind of existential question on economic development guided and governed a lot of government policies, efforts, and even the initiatives of the private sector at that time was more focused on economic development. Mm. So arts took not just a, a backseat, but far away, not even in the car, I would mm. say. But I must also point out that Mr. Rajaratnam, our culture minister in that era, mm -hmm was one of the most articulate advocates of the role of the arts. Mm -hmm. And he was the man who conceived of Singapore as a global city. The antecedents of the arts festival were there in some of the big mega festivals. I would say the Southeast Asia Cultural Festival. And even before that, there was an arts festival with mm -hmm. the name Arts Festival. While the arts festival was not unique or... or, or the first time ever, mm -hmm. I would say the sense of the role of arts became more palpable since the 80s mm. because both the government and uh, companies like Mobil got involved in it in a very conscientious as well as in a consistent, concerted way. That was not the case until that 
period. Yeah. And also the notion that arts is only for those who have a, a full stomach, which is, I, I think, a luxury, rather unfortunate. It? it was not a luxury, but that's the way it was articulated by some of our leaders, sure. uh, which is very unfortunate. As we all know, a great art has been produced by poverty-stricken people around the world. And I think for some of uh, the people who wanted to help, they were probably waiting for some signal. I think Mobile's participation had a signaling effect on many other corporates. Of course, most of them were uh, multinational corporations because this is part of their tradition. Mm. But there was also Singapore companies, if I can cite the example of UOB and the painting of their competition. That's a Singapore company which uh, paid a lot of money and put in a lot of effort to create this competition, which has paid off uh, very handsomely for the arts lovers, yes. as well as for the company. I, I like to put some dates into uh, this section just so that uh, our listeners can also follow our timeline a little bit. You mentioned the year 1979. So actually for nine years since 1970, you were a senior producer with the Central Productions Unit of the Radio Television Singapore, RTS, yes. right? Yes, that's a name that most people would not recognize today. <laughs> <laughs> RTS, yeah. Besides a current affairs program, uh, this unit actually also produced arts-related programs and documentaries. So I can see why you were, um, you know, working there. Uh, and then 1979, you moved over to Mobile. That's the company you talked about as public affairs manager. And you are credited as being instrumental yeah, in I Mobile's started off as public affairs advisor and then uh, got promoted as public affairs manager a little later. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So public affairs advisor at yeah. first and then public affairs manager. And you're credited as being instrumental in Mobile's decision to sponsor the 1982 Singapore Arts Festival. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it seems like a good time to move into sort of the evolution of the Singapore Arts Festival. The nation's flagship arts festival, now known as the Singapore International Festival of the Arts, is a well-loved staple of our city's cultural calendar. And it draws diverse attendance with audiences from all walks of life, be they young, old, local, international, regular arts goers, or even people who are new to the arts. But when did this all begin? Um, you mentioned earlier on about some antecedents, so I'm going to, to give some context um, to that as well and to understand what forces have shaped its growth over the decades and how that has in turn shaped the local arts scene. How does the festival's history tie in with the growth of arts management in the 1980s? Now, the earliest record of a national arts festival that we know of was 1959, just before Singapore's self-governance. Mm. And that was just an, a one-off event. And it wasn't until 1975 that we begin to hear of this word, SIFA, Singapore yeah. International Festival of the Arts. Yeah. 1963, there was the Southeast Asia Cultural Festival. Mm -hmm. It ran for about a week. It was to celebrate the official opening of the National Theatre. Mm -hmm. Even though at that point in time, it was only partially completed. You remember the National yes, Theatre? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it was one of the most exciting arts events I had ever seen in my life till then. Yes. But I have to say, even now, after so many decades, that was a mega festival and had such an impact on so many of us because that was the... Southeast Asia. This was our backyard. 
We always look to the West as if that's where the best is. But we were exposed for the first time as a country how our neighbours have developed the art and what their arts are and what their culture is. Yeah, I was so excited and I'm so glad I had the opportunity to attend some of the events myself. How old were you at that time? I was born in 1945, so this must be about, uh, what's the year? Before you were 20, 18. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> Phew, <laughs> saved by my maths. <laughs> I, yeah. I read that the ticket prices range from $1 to $5. Was that a big amount? for me at the time. Ah, too, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> and there were, what, 1,500 artists from 12 neighbouring countries? Yeah. And this was a milestone in the history of Southeast Asia because it marked the first time that so many countries in the region had come together to participate in a single cultural event. Mm-hmm. Any idea what the significance was of holding this in Singapore? My sense is this, as you know, I was a young schoolboy, but sure. I think it was primarily motivated by the political idea of an ASEAN group of countries. While the arts was the probably the excuse the real motive was to bring ASEAN countries together. Mm. As you know, this was an extremely tumultuous period in geopolitical history. There was grave fears about what would happen to the smaller countries in Southeast Asia in the bipolar world, the communist and the democratic geopolitical Cold War. So I would say that while it was a fantastic art event, Mm -hmm. it had a political background and a primary motivation. Because unfortunately, such a festival was not continued Mm -hmm. on a periodic basis after that, which is a great shame. Sure. So I suppose this wasn't really art for art's sake, so to speak. Yeah. That was 1963. So I think now that we look back, we can see that, well, that was just like two years before independence. The planning for this festival started in 1961 by a festival committee chaired by Lee Kun Choi, who was then Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Culture. It embraced diversity as a key determinant of national identity. And there was also an exhibition held from uh, 7th to 15th August to showcase paintings, photographs, sculptures, musical instruments as well. All this was held at the Victoria Memorial Hall and uh, Singapore Polytechnic at that point in time. So the seedlings really for the the arts festival as we now know it um, would have been something like 1975, am I correct, Arun? Yes, that's my recollection too. Mm -hmm. Though I was not in Mobile, Mm -hmm. That, uh, as far as I know, John Lim was uh, directly involved in this. He was then the public affairs manager. So I certainly trace Mobile's involvement in the arts festival to that point. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, how this festival began in 1975 was that a group of music enthusiasts and music education inspectors of public schools who were working with the Young Musician Society, which was one of MOE's extracurricular arms. They approached Mobile Oil to sponsor a concert in 1975. And you're absolutely right. Mr. John Lim, who was the public relations manager, welcomed the idea and counter-proposed an arts festival to enhance the local cultural scene. And I guess it was just an opportunity to be seized. The members of YMS drew up a master plan for the arts festival with programs and budgets for Mobile Oil. And one of Mobile Oil's executives, that's you, Arun, subsequently became a member of the festival's steering committee. I was fortunate enough to be there (laughs) much later, yes. 
tell us what the vibe, the atmosphere was like at the point in time where you had a chance in a way to start up a festival mm. for art's sake. Yeah. Between John Lim and myself, there was Peter Wilkinson okay. who succeeded John Lim. Mm. The, the thing about Mobile Corporation, not just Mobile Oil Singapore, but Mobile Corporation, is it had long been a patron of the arts and culture. And it had a tradition of actually publishing coffee table uh, quality books on arts and culture of the, some of the countries in which they operate. Which is why, as you well know, uh, in the corporate world, every cent counts. They'd, many people may think, well, they, and certainly in the 1980s, the oil business was the biggest business in the world. And the Seven Sisters, as the, uh, the most important seven oil companies were called, ruled the world in a figurative sense. The money was not uh, the issue, but the cause is. And Mobile already had this at its core, and the headquarters was very much in support of arts activities. Whereas in some of the corporations, including, I would say, even in Mobile, some directors actually asked me, how many liters of petrol can you sell through mm. the arts festival? Yes, I can imagine. It has to be quantified, right? So I told them, it's a, a stock answer. The festival is not to sell the petrol as such, but it is to sell Mobile Corporation, Mobile Oil Singapore, that it's a company that it functions as a corporate citizen mm. in a responsible way. And there was hardly any corporation in Singapore in the 1980s who had taken up arts as their primary thing. I mean, if you look at our biggest competitor, Shell, mm. which is huge, but they had already established themselves, for example, the Shell traffic game. That was their uh, brand. And they did a lot of stuff in um, promoting understanding of science, environment, and so on. No big player was in the arts field. I think that is because, as we discussed earlier, the notion of arts as an integral and as an, a very important part of our life as a global city or as a nation was not well established at that time. Mm. And as I mentioned also, Dr. Uh, Mr. Rajaratnam did promote the idea of a global city, mm. but the arts as an integral part of it came much later. So, to some extent, when I got into Mobile, I saw that the government was turning to arts development as an important face in our uh, nation building. Mm. The fact that other corporations didn't pay attention gave Mobile the feeling this is a green field mm. in which we can plant our flag. And that's what I think John Lim did, actually that the, it's a pioneering effort. In fact, Mobile has always been called a pioneer in the arts in the Singapore uh, scene, you know. But this is a role it had played in elsewhere around the world. So it was very easy for me to promote this idea, to make it bigger, better, because my headquarters was totally in uh, sync with me. And my then chairman, whom I should mention, Dorsey Dunn, was also instrumental. Whenever people give me credit, actually the credit should go to Dorsey Dunn and the headquarters because they were fully behind these proposals. 
If not for their support, their blessing, nothing would have happened. Mm. But I also uh, have to say that uh, Mr. Lee Y. Cork, who was then Director of Culture, under whose jurisdiction the Arts Festival came, took to me in a very kind sort of way, though I would have sounded like a maverick at times, and uh, Michael Luke was his deputy at the time. These people were willing to listen to ideas. So I would say my entry into the Arts Festival through the auspices of Mobile was very fortuitous. It was the right time with the right people, and it was a propitious moment, if I may say so. It sounds like the stars have been lined in the, up. I'm in because, the right constellation. Yeah, yes. you're in the right constellation yeah. because you are an arts lover. You're put into this situation where you can see yeah. the opportunity. Mobile had been in the game of supporting yes. the arts anyway and believed yes, in yes, it. Yeah. You positioned yourselves as a, yeah. you know, a citizen of this location and of the world as well. Yes. I think this is, in a way, kind of the, the perfect arts sponsor, yes. so to speak, that situation. We, we also had another character in the cast, which is Gary Steen. When I went over to New York for my developmental assignment, he was brought from New York to mm. hold the fort. And he was the public affairs manager in between 82 and 83. And uh, so he was of the same ilk and he was totally committed to this. So even when I left for New York in 1982, June or something, mm -hmm. he was very much in support of the arts and uh, he played a critical role in the steering committee as well. One of the probably um, useful thing for a lot of people to remember, the notion of a corporate involvement is usually financial. Corporations donates a certain amount of money in support of the event or the cause. Mm -hmm. In mobile, what we did was originally we were just signing the checks mm -hmm. and we were in the finance committee. Right. But later on, Gary Steen and then myself we got involved in the steering committee of the Arts Festival. Right. And I actually became the chairman of the marketing committee, which is not expected of a, a sponsor. Wow. Uh, we took a really a hands-on approach to corporate sponsorship, which is not usually the case. We became, I became a very active member of the entire steering committee, the organizing process, and not just content with signing the checks for the festival. Yeah, but you signed the checks for, Mobile signed the checks for three editions, right? The three That's right. The editions. first three editions were solely sponsored by, by Mobile. Mobile. Right. But uh, during my time, I really felt that if the festival were to grow, mm -hmm. and that was certainly Mobile's intention, that it must grow, it needed a much bigger pocket than mobiles. Mm, yes, we'll go into that in a short while. Yes. There is a quote here from you at, in the Straits Times in 1986. It says, As far as mobile support is concerned, we have a very soft spot for the festival and we would like to provide as much support as we can afford, both financially and through our staff's involvement in organising the festival, end quote. Usually when we talk about budgets and sponsorship, they're hard numbers. They, there's a very capitalist slant to it, what we give, what we want to get back right. and things like that. Any comments about these other players that you've mentioned? Like It yeah. feels like the people you were working with all had a very soft spot for yes. the arts. The staff involvement is again a mobile practice in the headquarters 
headquarters and in many other countries, they actually loan very senior executives to charitable institutions, sometimes on a full-time basis for two to three years. They are seconded to the uh, organization mm -hmm. and bring in their expertise sure. to that. So it could be financial, it could be non-financial. And in that sense, my involvement and Gary Steen's involvement in the steering committee, marketing committee, so on, is in addition to the fund, the actual cash that we offered, we were giving our time. valuable time, yeah. which is also paid for by mobile. So yes. when you add it all up, it is much more than the dollar amount that you see in the sponsorship. But I must say that the Ministry of Culture then was welcoming of our involvement. Of course, the, the chairman of the steering committee was Robert Yao, mm. a legendary figure in the arts development. And as you know, he was the first chairman of what we call today the Esplanade. So we had a number of corporate people who had an active role in shaping the festival. Mm. And this, I think, is a modus operandi that many other corporates should uh, take into consideration. Yeah. Because the civil service has a certain depth and a certain breadth, without question. But they do, they can be helped in other dimensions by the corporate executives who become part of the process. Mm. Just like artists themselves, you know, when they are in the steering committee, it takes on a very different, the whole game changes. When you only have civil servants sitting in a steering committee or even civil servants and corporate sitting in a steering committee, it is good but not good enough. Mm, no, I think you, you're definitely making a case for diversity yes. in um, the management of a yes. festival and yeah. in the arts in general. The three editions that were fully sponsored by Mobile alone were the Singapore Festival of the Arts in 1977. It ran for seven days. The venue was Victoria Theatre and the cost was fully borne by the sole sponsor, Mobile Oil. There were 1,300 participants and 77 groups performed in seven nights of sold-out shows. And competition was a core entry, with 75 entries received and judged. The second edition was the 1978 Arts Festival, so just one year later. It also ran for seven days. The venue was Victoria Theatre. The cost was $150,000. involved more than 2,000 participants and 100 groups. And on opening night, it was announced that the Singapore Cultural Foundation would be set up to fund arts development in Singapore. Definitely a very exciting announcement, I can imagine, during that time. It was organised by the Ministry of Culture together with MOE and Radio and Television Singapore. The performances were by established groups such as the National Dance Company, Pingxie Peking Opera Troupe, Singapore Ballet Academy, Singapore Indian Fine Arts Society. And the competition element continued to provide local groups with an opportunity to be involved. The visual arts threat was also introduced and it featured artists from member countries of ASEAN. Then there was a skip, there was a rest of one year where there was no festival. That brought us to 1980. This is the third edition that was fully yeah, sponsored so by Perhaps Mobile. I should explain why there was a gap. Yes, please. Originally, the festival was conceived as an annual festival. But when I got involved and looked at the scope of an international festival, we felt that it is unsustainable for the ministry and Mobile to mount the effort and provide the funding on an annual basis. 
So it was proposed that we switch to a biannual cycle. Mm. And that's why the subsequent few festivals were definitely on a biannual basis. Because we needed to take more time to organize a proper festival. I use the word proper advisedly in the sense that if you really want a professional international festival, you need a lot more lead time. Mm. And to make something uh, annual, you have to plan at least two or three years ahead. Mm. And we just didn't have the bandwidth at that time. So that was the reason why we decided there will be no festival in... 1979, that's right, yeah. So in 1980, the festival came back and that was really, I would say, the formal start of your involvement, Arun, right? Yeah. This was the final year with a competitive feature. There was strong artistic direction. The programs were curated to ensure a diverse range of events to suit people of different ages and tastes. And this was in line with the government's view of the arts as a tool for nation building as well and also cultural development. There were dedicated programs for theatre and visual arts introduced. There was participation from international artists such as Australia, Austria, Japan, Korea, Sweden and the USA, giving expression to what you were saying earlier Mm. on, why there was a gap year to prepare for that as well. This was also the time where the Singapore Festival of the Arts was started as a professional organisation? Okay, when I say professional, I mean it's not a registered professional organisation, but I would say the word professional applies particularly to the artistic director. Mm. Until then, the festivals were organised primarily by the civil servants, the Ministry of Culture senior staff. Uh, Mr. Levi Kok was the director of culture. The modus operandi was because of the support that the embassies in Singapore could give, they tended to look to the foreign embassies in Singapore to provide an art group, uh, a performing group, to come and perform at the festival. But my conception and some others at that time uh, in the steering committee felt that we really need a professional artistic director. Mm, Someone to give that artistic input and direction. Uh, That's right. And that is the professional part of it, that we felt that somebody with a vast experience in organizing arts festival should lead the charge. And that is when we brought in Anthony Steele, who had already acquired a very high reputation as the festival director of the Adelaide Arts Festival, which actually was a model that we tried to emulate because the biggest one at that time was the Edinburgh Festival. But that was just too big. So we looked to Adelaide Arts Festival and uh, we noticed that Mr. Anthony Steele had done a marvelous job. So I approached him and then uh, invited him for an audition with uh, Mr. Lee Wyckoff. Yes, that's the professionalization of festival management. Man. This began with your 1982 suggestion of the appointment of the artistic director. And from such decisions made in 1982, we can see how there were more and more. Basically, we followed this thread and always had an artistic director down the line in the years of the Singapore Arts Festival. I have a quote here, and this is a quote by Mr. Liu Chen Choi, who was himself an artistic director. At the point in time, he was working at the National Arts Council. He said, 
from the very beginning, the festival was very much a civil service driven project operating under the stifling civil service rules and procedures of the instruction manuals. Bureaucrats like me, meaning Mr. Liu, on posting to the Ministry of Culture were assigned the task of organising the festival as part of their civil service duties. And many of us took on the pioneering task of organising a whole plethora of cultural activities without an arts background or formal training in arts management. And this quote was taken from a 2007 article. Yeah. Yes, Chinchar was a comrade in arms uh, because uh, Lee Wai Kok, Michael Luke, and Chin Choi. Mm. They were, these were people who played a very important role. And I had the pleasure of working with all of them. But as he himself has confessed, there was a certain lack of familiarity with what a, a, a really, again, to use the word, professional arts festival should be. Mm. And that's why um, Anthony Steele, at first I, I have to say this, um, there was a reluctance how do we get a foreigner to come here and mm. understand? Because we had both international as well as Singapore arts in our heart. Mm. It was not just a, a platform for showcasing international arts. It is also a platform for Singapore arts. Mm. So there were some uh, concerns and you know, some kind of questions about the ability of a foreign artistic director to address this dual purpose. Right. But I was personally convinced that uh, to bring in the Singapore element, we had enough people in the steering committee. <clears throat> For example, Professor Bernard Tan was there. That's right. So I wasn't particularly worried about that. And like I said, my kind of successor and predecessor, uh, Gary Steen, the American who took over the public affairs uh, portfolio, was also very much in support of this, which is why when we recommended to the government, at least consider him. So we had a very long lunch with Anthony Steele. And I think Anthony Steele impressed the group so much, especially the director himself, Levi Cork. He later uh, changed his mind and said, okay, let's uh, bring him back again and have a, a formal contractual agreement. And that's how it all started. Reluctance at first, but a very uh, thorough, rigorous discussion and a change of heart. Mm. In 1982, Anthony Steele was appointed as the festival consultant, and this was the beginnings of that professionalization. The dates of this festival were 10th to 20th November 1982. I'd like you to just take note of this cost here. It was $1.7 million. There was a growth of new corporate sponsors, such as the Singapore Airlines, the Singapore Tourist Promotion Board, uh, now of course called the Singapore Tourism Board. They became major sponsors. The objectives here were to program a good cultural mix of products to ensure that audiences had an opportunity to savour the world arts. There was also the introduction of a festival film week, to broaden the appeal to film lovers. There was also the start of staging the festival in multiple theatre venues to make it accessible for audiences. So, for example, in this year, 1982, there were eight venues used, and they included Victoria Theatre, 
the World Trade Center Auditorium, it's not in use now, the Drama Center, the DBS Auditorium, the Singapore Conference Hall, these were uh, the, the venues that were mentioned. There was invitation of renowned international practitioners to work with Singaporeans to build and inject professionalism. So that was the beginning of collaboration. There was also encouragement of collaborative projects by ethnic theatre and arts companies here in Singapore. All this helped to bridge partnerships and relationships, especially amongst rival arts groups, shall we say. Some of these landmark shows are the Little White Sailing Boat by 13 Chinese groups. There was also Punchak involving four Malay groups and Kala Sandhya comprising four Indian groups. So in that year alone, 1982, very, very big one. 1983, formation of the Festival Secretariat happened that was formed under the Ministry of Culture, which would later sit under the Cultural Affairs Division of the Ministry of Community Development. Wow, Arun, you went through all this. So many iterations uh, of the ministries and, yes. and the formation of various things. So I'm going to pick your brain in a short while, okay? I'm going to go back to something we talked about in a short while. Let me just give that last year that Anthony was hired for the Singapore Arts Festival. That was 1984. And the dates of the festival were 8th to 24th June. Wow, very, very long run. Coincided with the 25th anniversary of Singapore's nation building. The cost was $1.8 million, so about the same as 1982. Yeah, sponsorship of 1.46 million by 68 sponsors. So this is a lot more. 94% attendance. It reached out to 88,000 people. Okay, people are keeping track of the statistics here. There was an introduction of a computerized ticketing system, the, the brainchild of Robert Yao, who was then chairman of the Festival Programming Committee. Unfortunately, after preparing for months to get the computers ready for selling tickets, sadly, they failed on the first day of public sales and the traditional method of buying tickets in person had to be resumed. Nice anecdote there. The person is still the good fallback. <laughs> there was also an introduction of a festival fringe. This fringe featured 12 groups and 34 performances at 13 venues, including housing estates. There was a mix of community and amateur group performances, open rehearsals and workshops. These workshops were by companies performing at the festival, of course. And it was important in terms of encouraging original and experimental new works by Singaporean artists and for the community outreach. What was the scene like then? Why was this important, Arun? The tendency of international programming focuses on big theatres with very modern and very extensive facilities, technical facilities. That's why you now have the Esplanade, uh, Theatres on the Bay, with state-of-the-art facilities. But we felt the arts festival was always conceived as elite activity. It's only for select people mm -hmm. and those people who had to be already preordained to appreciate the arts. These sort of notions were widespread. Mm. And so we decided that while we want to bring people to the festival, the festival must now go to the people. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason why we deliberately chose to stage these events in the housing estate, which is the heart of Singapore, sure, right? Sure. So the festival was now going to the people mm. and performing in open air, performing in sort of pop-up stages. These were things that were actually not new to us. We mm. had done the Wayang 
for uh, nearly a century uh, that way. Yeah, street theatre. That's right. Street mm. theatre was already part of our culture. So we decided to expand the Fringe Festival. One is to go to the people. Second, to have a different kind of program mix because what you do within a proscenium theatre is vastly different from what you can perform in the open air. And thirdly, we also wanted to give opportunities for local uh, performers mm. because in the core festival, given the limitations of time and the cost of tickets, not a lot of people would be able to afford that. Mm -hmm. So we felt for the Fringe Festival, most of them were not ticketed. It's free performances. And we felt the Singapore performers could have an opportunity to, and also it was a, a platform for experimental work. You don't have to worry about the risks so much when you are doing it in the Fringe Festival. Mm. Actually, Fringe in many other international festivals yeah. are also experimental. Right, like Edinburgh, Edinburgh Fringe. Edinburgh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We took inspiration from other Fringe festivals. Sure, sure. And in this context, I must mention one person in particular, Jessica Liu. At that time, she was a science graduate and there was a concern, well, what would a science graduate do with a festival in the ministry. So uh, I hired her as a mobile staff, then loan her to <laughs> the festival. <laughs> yes, they say, okay, don't worry about her qualifications and all that. I think she has the right heart. So we loaned her to the uh, ministry and she was actually the life wire, the prime driving force behind the Fringe Festival. Mm. Her performance was so good that Mr. Lee Wycock actually hired her full-time into the ministry establishment, as they call it, the staff. I think it just shows two things. One is that the Fringe Festival was a right idea mm. at the right time. Yep. Secondly, when you hire people, you cannot go by paper qualification, which is an obsession in the civil service. Mm. I think what the private sector does is it focuses more on the capacity and the capabilities as of now, right. not what you did in your uh, university days and what rank did you get, what grade did you get. Those are okay. I mean, they are an indicator. Mm. But people um, like me and others in the private sector, will. what did you do yesterday? And Jessica was able to convince me and later on the steering committee that she has got what it takes to run this festival. I want to say a little bit about the programming for this 1984 festival as well, because you mentioned experimentation, and I think there's some wonderful examples here. For example, there was an introduction of a song to promote the festival. I think it was called Finer Side of Life, mm. written by Mary Tan and was performed by the NUS Choir at the festival opening. There was a continuation of international and local collaboration, of course. Mm. So one of the productions, seminal productions that we read about in, in history of local theatres, Bumboat, which is an English language musical mm. directed by American Zuma and Singaporean Lim Xiao Chong. This presented vignettes of contemporary Singaporean life in a series of stories written by a group of writers, including, of course, Michael Chiang uh, of Private Parts fame, Catherine Lim, of course, one of our illustrious novelists, Jacinta Abishikanathan, Dick Lee was composer and musical director, 
there was also continuation of encouraging collaboration amongst local groups in a single production. And that production was a Chinese one. It's The Ula World. Mm. It was directed by the late Kuo Pao Kun, doyen of uh, Singapore Theatre, uh, Han Lao Da and Hua Liang. Introduction of a Peranakan play as well. This was called Pile Manatu, which drew record audiences. So, 1984 sounds like a year of a lot of groundbreaking Absolutely. it was work. Because 82 had already been partially planned. Mm-hmm. So Anthony still had to make do with what was given him. Sure. 84 is entirely his. And that's why I consider that festival truly outstanding in many ways. It was pioneering, like what you mentioned just now, collaboration between foreign production uh, houses or companies and local Singaporean ones. Mm -hmm. And also within Singapore, we decided instead of giving one theatre group its own place in the festival, why don't we get a number of Singapore groups to perform together in one place? In fact, in the case of the Indian dance performance, Anthony and I met with one of the greatest dancers in the world, an Indian lady. We brought her here and she choreographed the Indian dance by an open audition where all the Indian dance groups could send their students or members and just be selected by her. Mm. You know? So this was an example of collaboration that is highly fruitful. And the learning thing, you know, that what we can learn from the masters mm. was part of the game plan that by collaborating with a very well-established foreign group or a person, we could learn in the process itself. So I, I, uh, that was all Anthony's work. It was absolutely brilliant. Mm, and very well supported by, very well, yes. by the administration and all the uh, marketing and everything as well. Could I go back a little bit to the purse, the solo purse of Mobile that you had mentioned earlier on. Yeah. You had mentioned that Mobile felt that, no, you did not want to hoard on to the sort yeah. of the rights in yeah. a way to be called the sole sponsor. Yeah. Can you maybe say a little bit about which other sponsors came yeah. in and how that elevated the yeah. festival? I think the tendency among corporates is to monopolize sponsorship. That's normal because it's part of your brand. Just like the, uh, you know, uh, painting of the, it's a UOB show, right? Mm. That, uh, and this is normal. There's nothing unusual or unethical about that. But in our case, when we saw the potential of the arts festival, that it can grow much, much bigger and also much better, our management was persuaded to accept that, look, we don't have to be the sole sponsor. First, we can't afford it. If we really want to go big, can we put in a few million dollars, like $5 million to begin with? Mm. That's too much for even the world's third largest company at the time for mobile. So we proposed to the management that we become one of the sponsors. And by the tradition of starting it, we would probably be the main sponsor but we should be prepared for the eventuality that we would be just one of the sponsors. To the great credit of my management, they accepted this, that we don't have to hog it. We don't have to keep it a mobile product. And then, because I was also the chairman of the marketing committee, I went around together with others in the ministry 
to promote the festival. And I think I had a very special uh, cachet because I am the mobile person who is actually saying to the other corporate leaders, hey, this has benefited us. Mm. It's not what the ministry is telling you. I am telling you from right, personal right. experience of mobile, we benefited from this. So it's like a fellow corporate telling, That's telling right. them that. That's right. Secondly, I also made it very clear to them that mobile has no intention of monopolizing the festival and we don't even have to have a say in who else is coming. I am here to advocate uh, the festival and, and to say that you would be most welcome, even though you are a rival in some sense, in a business sense, that we are most happy for others to come in and be a partner in the sponsorship. So we went around uh, canvassing uh, for funding, but as you would have noticed, that the first two, uh, Singapore Airlines is a kind of government company. It's a GLC. And certainly the Tourism Promotion Board is a government institution. But over time, others came in, I think, after they had seen, one, the benefits, and second, the welcoming mood within the festival uh, steering committees. This is not favoring mobile all the time. Even though I continue to serve in the festival for many years, even after I left mobile, sure. I eventually I became chairman of the festival at one point. But I think it was important for mobile to signal this willingness to bring in others. And I'm very glad that my management took that enlightened view of sponsorship rather than uh, monopolizing it. Arun was talking about how you wanted to share this, this sponsorship load and the privilege as well with other corporates. And 1986, that edition of the Singapore Festival of the Arts would prove to be the festival where that actually came to pass. The dates of the festival were 6th to 22nd June. The cost was $2.3 million and uh, the sponsorship of $1.9 million actually came from 85 sponsors. The Eight major sponsors were Singapore Turf Club, putting in $600,000, followed by Singapore Tourism Promotion Board at $500,000. And then uh, you had Mobile Oil Singapore, two hundred dollars And then you had the Cultural Foundation, $150K, and Singapore Pools, ten dollars There was also the addition of non-cash contributors, such as Western Stamford and Western Plaza. They offered free accommodation to troops that were coming to Singapore and artists, Singapore Airlines for discounted airfares and total information system which developed the computerized ticketing system. For the first time, credit card companies such as the American Express waived commission charges for payment of tickets booked with the use of credit cards. And in fact, there's this quote that I read here, every ticket that you bought in that year to the Festival of the Arts was subsidized to the tune of $21 on average. That's really big uh, subsidy. There was the appointment of Robert Liu as the artistic director that year. There was also the introduction of the Writers' Week, which remained until 1990 and would subsequently spin off to be become the Singapore Writers' Festival in 1991. The interesting thing here is that the Festival Fringe, which Arun was talking about, had an allocated budget. And this budget was $15,000. It included no parking on odd days by Kuo Pao Kun, and it was staged by a practice performing arts school. 
Then we cut to 1988, which was the 10th anniversary of the festival. This was an interesting festival as well. The cost was 3.7 million. It lasted five weeks. There were 42 international and local productions. What was important here to note is that there was a festival commission of Beauty World. Beauty World was premiered by Theatre Works at World Trade Centre Auditorium. And of course, in Backlogs, we will have a chance to speak to an arts manager who was active at that time with Theatre Works, Lucilla Teo. In 1990, that was when I was 16 years old, Arun. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit like you, looking at the Festival of the Arts as well, uh, at that point in time, very much as an audience member. There was the appointment of Tisa Ng, Hmm. Tisa Ho Ng, as she's known, and she was the artistic coordinator. I got to know Tisa later on because she was a board member of the Necessary Stage and I had acted Hmm. with uh, the Necessary Stage as well. Hmm. That was a very interesting year. $4 million, more than $4 million was raised to fund the festival, Hmm. to promote the Festival of the Arts program, the Cultural Division of the Ministry of Community Development established a marketing department dedicated to generating corporate support. For the first eight months of 1989, the marketing manager, Nelly Ha, called upon an average of two companies a day. So I think what you mentioned earlier on about Mobile asking the corporates to come forward, it was really starting to bear fruit in 1990. This year was also interesting. There was a festival commission of Lao Jiu by mm. Theatre Doyen, Kuo Pao Kun. Yeah. And Lao Jiu continues to be part of uh, the canon Absolutely. of yeah, yes. Singapore yeah. work. There was the introduction of a music forum series supported by Performing Rights Society to showcase Singaporean works. And of course, it also included the restaging of Lanterns Never Go Out by TNS at the Drama Centre. We will be speaking to two arts managers who were very active at TNS at that point in time as well, Gosu Lin and Clarice Ng in Backlogs. Arun, you were also a key figure in the development of Singapore's cultural policy in the late 80s. And then for the 1991 establishment of the National Arts Council, you chaired the subcommittee that drew up the blueprint for NAC. And this subcommittee was part of the Advisory Council on Arts and Culture. Now, if we move beyond this period, in the year 2004, you came back actually to chair this festival. Were you excited? by this proposition? Uh, no, I would say <laughs> I, I did it under duress because oh I really thought I was way past my prime and that there were many uh, better people than myself. But Lee Swan Hyang and Go Ching Lee, mm. who were then heading up the Arts Council, persuaded me that sometimes uh, a few grey hairs and some... A lot <laughs> of experience. <laughs> yes, some uh, experience would help. Because the role of the chairman then was not so much to initiate things because we had already a very well-established modus operandi for the festival by the time. This was more to bring in perhaps more people and to negotiate a few things. I didn't play a very, I won't say I played a a tremendous role uh, as a chairman, but uh, I finally agreed to be the chair and uh, because I always loved the festival. Mm. In a way, I, I always feel a sense of ownership that I put in a few bricks at the foundation. And uh, so I thought, okay, if they really felt I could be of some service, I would be happy to do so. I, I think what 
you've just highlighted is that in Singapore, there are so many people who have seen the beginnings of the arts, have done something, put a, brick, a few bricks in the foundation, as you mentioned, and much of it is not documented. And in some sense, the pace of development of everything in Singapore, including the arts, has been so fast that in a way, we need to look back a little bit to see where we've begun because sometimes some things come uh, in full circle. For example, now I think that actually a lot of arts groups, local arts groups, and I think funding is still a problem. Where do they look for funding, for example? How do they get themselves into festivals? Is there going to be an arts manager who's looking out for them and saying, hey, why don't you collaborate together mm. and perform in this fringe or in that program? So I think this continuity speaks a lot about the collective wisdom that comes with remembering colleagues who have actually put in a lot of time and effort yeah. into the building blocks of uh, the Singapore art scene. This concludes part one of our discussion with Arun Mahilman. We discussed the evolution of the Singapore Arts Festival and the role of corporate sponsorship, not just in terms of financial support, but also operational support that extends to the organisational management and direction of the festival. The idea of the People's Festival came up as well a festival that reaches out to people in the heartlands. We also discussed the festival's support of local theatre productions, which aided the development of a credible, homegrown arts ecosystem. Another aspect of the festival is its multidisciplinary scope, including different art forms from theatre to film to music to visual art. We also learned about the professionalization of festival organizations through the appointment of an artistic director. In part two, we'll learn about Arun's adventures in cultural policy, as well as his friendships with artists. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm.